the State Archives of North Carolina. Connecting the Docs, a podcast connecting archival materials to fascinating, true stories from around the Old North State. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, where archival records connect us to an event in North Carolina's past. I'm your host, Andrea Gabriel. Today we continue Ghost Ship, the mystery of the Carol A. Deering. In last week's episode, we learned about the mysterious disappearance of a ship's crew when the Carol Deering ran aground off of Diamond Shoals, off of North Carolina's Cape Hatteras. Looking at wreck reports housed at the Outer Banks History Center, we read the words of a lighthouse station keepers when they spied the Deering. In today's episode, we'll look at some of the primary source materials and discuss theories of what became of the crew. Episode 2, A Great Maritime Mystery. I'm joined again by archivist Stuart Parks, Donna Kelly, and Chris Meekins. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. The wreck reports at the Outer Banks History Center reveal how the surfmen responded to the wrecks or any kind of distress call. And it's interesting because reading their, their own, they, the ones we have are actually typed, but it's interesting to see how they phrase certain things. We get some information from newspapers also, and we've used a few newspaper articles here. Chris, can you talk about the newspaper collection at the State Archives? Sure. Um, State Archives has long collected newspapers almost uh, since we were an organization. We have been collecting newspapers. Um, in 1959, Archives and History uh, began microfilming newspapers. And so most of our collection now is access to microfilm. And from that project uh, became extensions of uh, National Endowment of Arts grants to gather newspapers and North Carolina newspapers and get those on microfilm. And I think maybe now UNC is continuing our project in a digital format and doing that. And you can find digital newspapers in their collection um, housed at their university. We have lots of newspapers, have long had newspapers. Our um, guide to newspapers online uh, from our website, the State Archives of North Carolina website, can point you to our collection and, and help you get an idea if if it's arranged by um, county and by city. So you're looking for your city, you look for the title of the newspaper and see if we have holdings for it. So these are good um, resource then in addition to the very few rec reports we have. We don't have a lot of original records about this particular case. We do have the rec reports. We do have the map that at least shows Diamond Shores, Shoals, and we have newspaper accounts. And newspaper accounts sort of run the gamut. They can be very matter-of-fact and straightforward and chock full of important information, and they can still be full of important information, but written with a bias and a particular slant, um, and they can just make things up from whole cloth. It, you just never know. So a newspaper story is a good source, and then you check it against the other things that you have in your collection. If you have original records, it's right. good to check to, against to that. balance that out, yeah. Another source that we have and that I, I used when I looked at this story is a, actually a beautiful map, one of our maps from 1928. But Donna, can you talk a little bit about the maps we've got in our collection and how people can use them? Sure. We have over 6,000 maps at the State Archives. A lot of them are at the Outer Banks History Center, and they were collected by David Stick, who um, Stuart mentioned earlier. And the earliest one is from 1584. It's not very detailed, obviously, but you can at least make out what was what we become North Carolina. Um, the map that Andrea's speaking of is actually done by the Coast and Geodetic Survey. Um, they were done between 1838 and 1920. 
It was first created in 1807. A lot of times these maps were revised over and over again because, like we said, the shoals were shifting, and so it redefined how the coast, what the coast looked like. They show inlets, harbors, um, lighthouses, and then they also also show the depths and anything underwater that might be obstructing travel. So they're used a lot, as I said, to study how the coast has changed. So they're very important now for. Um, ecology and people who are studying the climate change and the the shifts in the water, the oceans, let's sea level. All right, getting back to the Deering. The other source of records are from the Coast Guard, and we actually don't have those, but they're held in this in the National Archives. Is that right, Stuart? Do you know? Yes, uh, National Archives. Uh, whenever a ship wrecked, uh, the keepers would write two reports, one of which would go back up to headquarters in Washington, and those eventually end up in National Archives. The other one were retained at the stations. And uh, from what I understand, they all got to, moved into one central station for storage later on. So National Archives would have a more complete record of the, the Coast Guard uh, shipwreck. So, starting back on February 4th, the wreck was boarded at 10.30 a.m. Those who went aboard found it ship-shape, but strangely deserted and quiet. So, tell us a little bit about why. Yes, uh, they got up there and, uh, like I said, no contact with anybody. Uh, They got on. The hold was filled with water from several days of waves breaking over the deck. Uh, Seams were ripped apart so badly that there was no hope of refloating her at that point. She was already going to pieces. Interestingly enough, food was found in the galley, as if it was being prepared prepared and someone had to leave in a hurry. So this is kind of an indication of, of what had happened on the ship before they left. And, and this, this detail was actually in the Coast Guard report, is that yes, right? Yes, it was okay. in the Coast Guard report. There was a pot of pea soup, a pan of spare ribs, and a pot of coffee. Now, if I was going to be jumping off a ship, I'd at least want some coffee. <laughs> the ship's log, the navigational equipment and personal belongings and documents were all gone. The steering gear was ruined, the wheel was broken, and a sledgehammer laid nearby. All of the lights were up at the same time, but they were burned out. They had been going for a good five days with no, uh, no recharge there. Charts were scattered all around the captain's bathroom. A map indicating daily positions showed Captain Wormel's distinctive handwriting that was identified by his uh, widow until January 23rd when someone else's was observed. The captain's cabin was in disarray. Three different pair of boots were found and the spare bed had been slept in. The rescue's men salvaged what they could, including the ship's bell, and that is on the that is on display at the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum. I went and saw it yesterday; quite lovely. And the captain's Bible, a half-starved cat or three cats. There's some discrepancy about this one. Some reports say were uh, aboard and saved by Captain James Carlson of the tug, and its steward L. K. Smith adopted them. An uh, interesting thing about these cats: supposedly they had six toes, and uh, evidently one of them, according to legend, uh, they 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 uh, had a good colony uh, startup on Hatteras afterwards, and one of them still lurks around the ferry docks on Hatteras, according to local legend. So if they reproduced, there had to be at least three cats and not, oh, at not least, just uh, one cat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I question a half-starved cat with a pot full of spare ribs. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and the coffee. I and mean, the coffee. My, my cat likes coffee. <laughs> pea soup, you know? What cat doesn't like pea what soup? What cat doesn't like pea soup? Mm. <laughs> but I think you see there in the reports, there's even some language um, strangely or oddly abandoned. So they're already sort of, just by describing it, they're already shading the story in different directions. That's true. That's true. 
On the 4th of March, the Manning attempted to tow the vessel, but there were rough seas and shallow waters. They had to cut the tow line. The sea was not breaking up the wreckage, so like many of them did and dispersed all the timber. So the federal government decided to destroy the ship because it was a menace to navigation. So this article I'm going to read is from the Wilmington Star on March 15th. 1921. Ghost ship on reef at graveyard to be destroyed by the Seminole. Giant five-masted schooner, Carol A. Deering, driven aground weeks ago to give way to high explosive. No trace of crew of 10 men ever found. Wreck becomes serious menace to navigation. Having for weeks withstood the continuous battering of the powerful waves breaking on diamond shoals off Cape Hatteras without showing hardly any signs of breaking up, the government has decided to destroy the giant five-masted schooner, Carol A. Deering, that grounded on the graveyard of the Atlantic some time ago during a heavy storm, resulting in the loss of her entire crew of 10 men. The Coast Guard cutter Seminole left port yesterday afternoon at 1 o'clock and it was learned from one of the officers that the principal mission of the cruise was to destroy the big sailing vessel, which is now a menace to navigation. The Deering will probably be blown up with high explosives. Before returning to this port, the Seminole will make a complete control of her district, which lies between Cape Hatteras and Charleston. The cutter will be away for several days. Because the oaken timbers of the Carol A. Deering have persistently held together despite the terrible onslaught of the waves, and because not one trace of the vessel's crew has ever been found, the fisher people living on the North Carolina coast near where the Deering lies have named the schooner the Ghost Ship. As a rule, vessels that go aground on diamond shoals during a heavy storm, as did the Deering, are quickly battered to pieces by the waves. But other than having her sails and rigging blown away by the wind, the schooner today is practically as she was when she ran upon the shoals. All efforts to float her were futile. That's what happened to the ship. Now we want to find out what happened to the crew. Chris, what primary sources do we have? We have any sources that tell us what happened to the crew? Mostly no. Mostly what we have are newspaper accounts that usually veer off into speculations. Tell us about one of those. There's a one that came out in early February. So yeah, one of the first theories put forth is mutiny. Um, on February 4th, 1921, the Winston-Salem Twin City Daily Center put forth the theory of mutiny as an explanation for the crew's disappearance. But once postulated, then they quickly dismissed it as a possibility. The paper had states that had mutiny occurred, it is contended, the crew would not have left her. It would have taken charge of her and sailed to some port where the mutineers could have made a safe landing and a getaway. Now, Captain Merritt, the original captain who fell sick, also rejected mutiny as a theory. But, of course, we do have the reports of the ill feelings between the new Captain Warmel and uh, the first mate, McClellan, and their history there. And earlier reports that Stuart talked about, there was that fight, although Warmel got McClellan out of jail and left us to 
sale. There's also the theory of the message in the bottle, Donna. Yes, this is a very interesting part of the story. This gentleman by the name of Christopher Columbus Gray discovered a message in a bottle on the Buxton Beach. And inside it, the paper said, Deering captured by oil-burning boat, something like chaser, taking off everything, handcuffing crew, Crew hiding all over ship. No chance to make escape. Finder, please notify headquarters Deering. So that was kind of odd that they wouldn't say, let's, you know, contact the Coast Guard. They wanted them to contact the headquarters. So then there was an article that came out that he discovered it about April 21st. So then later on, the Wilmington Morning Star in their April 29th edition had a headline um, said, Bottle yarn, nothing but a hoax declared. Captain Edgar Williams laughs out of court the story of a pirate crew. So, Stuart, there's another um, article about... Captain Williams and about why he thinks that there was no uh, there, no pirates. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Harbor Master Edward D. Williams, he, had, he did not think there were any pirates involved. Among the reasons given by Captain Williams as to why the message in the bottle was a hoax is that during such times as certainly would have prevailed on a ship when a crew was being handcuffed and forcibly taken off by piratical members of another ship, nothing but excitement would have reigned and no seaman would have had time to write such a message. Another thing, Captain Williams declared that sailors knew how to take out of a bottle, but never bothered themselves with putting anything into a bottle. So uh, he actually uh, was quoted as saying, Now I will mention the fact that a vessel going ashore on the breakers of Cape Hatteras, Cape Lookout, or Frying Pan Shoals is in such a predicament that the crew does not have time or think about writing a message and putting it into a bottle. When she is on the shoal and in the bed of the breakers, the vessel is drenched all over by the spray and heavy sea breaking over her. From my experience and observation, Vessels stranded on these shoals in a heavy gale of wind and heavy sea, there is not one time out of ten that the crew will succeed in getting away from her with safety. I have known several instances where vessels have gone ashore and the ship's boat was smashed and the crew had to remain on board of the wreck for several days when they were taken off by life-saving crew or some passing vessel after the storm. an investigation about this particular case. Donna, tell us a little bit about this and how this investigation started, if you would. Sure. Um, the captain's daughter, she believed that the message in a bottle was true. They had verified the handwriting. Some handwriting specialists had verified it. So she pleaded with a senator to try to get an investigation started. So this is Warmel's daughter. Right. Herbert Hoover was at that time the Secretary of Commerce. So he decided, well, there's been some other vessels missing in the area, so maybe there's some credence to doing an investigation. So actually, five departments investigated, and they were Commerce, Treasury, the Justice Department, the Navy, and even the State Department. So Hoover had put his assistant, Lawrence Ritchie, in charge of the investigation. And so they did a lot of interviews with people. That's how we know about the argument that Stuart mentioned earlier from interviews. And they had interviewed the lightship keeper. And that's how we knew about the sighting of the unnamed ship and also the, the sighting of the person who didn't appear to be the captain on the ship. He studied the logbooks um, of the Coast Guard lightships. And um, so much of the evidence that he 
found is housed in the presidential library, the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum that's in Iowa. And a lot of what we didn't actually look at the records, so what we're using were mentioned in secondary sources on, on the web and on various blog posts about this since it's been written about for ages. So then the next part of the story is interesting. Um how they determined that it was indeed a hoax. Christopher Columbus Gray finally admitted that he faked the note because he confessed to an undercover agent. So when they came to arrest him, he just took off. But Richie was clever and he had a plan to to capture him. In the course of his investigation, he had learned that Gray had applied for a job with one of the lighthouse keeper stations, but he didn't get the job. So on his application, he had put down some information. So when they asked him to come back to the station about his application, they just nabbed him right then and there because they knew. And then he obviously was handcuffed and taken away. And the whole thing was a hoax. He fessed up. Yep. He had to confess. That's great. He thought writing a, a hoax would get him a job. <laughs> so they offered him a job and they arrested him. People I mean, lie just, on their resumes all the time. This is yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Pretty extravagant lie. <laughs> Stuart, there's some, uh, there are a couple of other theories about what happened to the crew. A couple of them, uh, other ones out there. Uh, rum running uh, was a, a theory. There was a lot of rum running going on at the time. This was also during uh, Prohibition. So um, sneaking liquor into the United States was big money for those who knew how to do it. Um, so so did, did people think the men were taken off the ship? Or it's... It, it, some facts just have to be glossed over when you want a story to work out. So it's not the fact that the, the people were taken off the ship. It's like, oh, yeah, rum runners are horrible. They want to get liquor in here and, and, and just destroy our, our guys. That That's skeptical. Uh, the the Deering was such a massive ship, it, it would not have been a good rum runner. Uh, it was a very slow ship. Uh, the rum runners were typically smaller and faster. And, heavy. Uh, I mean, the Deering was heavy. It was a very heavy ship. And uh, they were... Uh, not very well known. Uh, the Deering was was way too big to be a rum runner. And, and like you pointed out, there's no reason to take the crew off and then crash the ship into the shoals if you wanted it to run rum. It's just it's not going to work out very well. Uh, the Washington Post uh, also put a, a theory of Bolshevik bulk buccaneers. Uh, evidently, Russians were blamed for the missing ships, including the Deering. They were being stolen for their cargo, which Russians could not buy under the embargo. Uh, they were a communist country at the time. Rum- Rumors floated around that the American vessels had their names blacked out and were seen at Russian ports. This theory continued to gain traction when the FBI raided the headquarters of the United Russian Workers in New York and found papers giving orders to capture ships. As late as July, the Navy was ordered to be on the lookout for crews that matched the description of those aboard the Deering. In fact, a worldwide search was conducted through February of 1922, but no definitive proof ever surfaced. And once again, if they were trying to steal the ship to uh, take it to Russia, they really did a poor job of it, just driving it right up on the shoals and and just left it. So perhaps they didn't need a ship. So there's that theory. Um, Again, Chris, we talked a little bit about the the mutiny theory. Donna has another theory too. And this is a a very interesting, you usually see this in shipwrecks somewhere along the line. So Donna, tell us a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the reasons this is such a popular mystery is because it was picked up by the Bermuda Triangle people. They think that because the ship passed through the Bermuda Triangle that there was some paranormal activity. Um, there was a first the first mention of this was in a book in 1931 about it. So then they started tying it to that. But one of the, another theory they thought that the ship that was sighted by the Coast Guard was an apparition 
or a spectral ship because the disaster had happened to the crew and this was just a remnant. But we've got the photograph. There's a photograph that was taken when it passed by the light ship, so that's mm-hmm. obviously not true. And we'll put that on the web, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, it, it remains a favorite among paranormal and Bermuda Triangle hobbyists. In fact, I found this game. They've got an online game about it where Lawrence Ritchie is searching for the missing ship, the Carol A. Deering, and you join in this online game to to try to help him find the ship. It's in um, fandom. I have no clue about any of that, but apparently it's a it's a big it's a thing. Wow. There's also a legend that the word Croatoan was the last word to appear in the logbook, and of course that's tied to the other big mystery on the coast. The logbook that no one can find. Yeah, yeah. But they, yeah. but they found it, and it's got the word Croatoan. Well, they found it long enough to find that word. Yeah, yeah. I found some of that in my research uh, for the Deering and also a, a theories of what happened to the Lost Colony. A Croatoan, evidently, according to the uh, experts online, uh, was the last word mumbled by Edgar Allan Poe on his deathbed. Uh, scholars actually say it was Reynolds. Uh, Amelia Earhart, famed aviator, scribbled it in her journal. Ambrose Bierce, early 20th century horror writer, carved it into his bedpost before he disappeared. Black Bart, the stagecoach robber, carved it to the wall of his cell before he disappeared. And of course, it was in the logbook of the Carol Deering where all the crew went missing with the logbook. So, um, but it does make for a, an interesting like, supernatural uh, I think story. Ted Bundy carved that on oh, his yeah, Everybody that went missing carved Croatoan somewhere. We just have to find it. That's, that's how that works. So, Stuart and Chris, if you want to talk a little bit about mutiny seems to be maybe, and Donna too, the, the most likely scenario, and that, that's what Richie and Hoover thought, and that's what they came to believe. One of the things they point to with that theory is um, the state of the captain's cabin when they found it. It had three pairs of boots in it that didn't belong to the captain, and the extra bunk in the cabin was slept in as well as the captain's. So it seemed as if perhaps a mutiny had occurred and they had locked all the officers in the same room. The other thing is the handwriting. The handwriting on the map, on it was the captain's handwriting up through January 23rd, but after that date, it was somebody else's handwriting. Mm-hmm. And also, if the crew was unfamiliar with the waters off the coast of North Carolina, they had mutinied and they, had, of course, got rid of the, the captain. And they were milling about on the boat as they were seen doing. Then they really had no idea what they were sailing towards. It was, was reported that they were seen. We don't know that they were seen. That well, was one of the reports. Yeah, milling, right? yeah, milling, yeah. milling about on the boat. Then it was like then they really had no idea what they were sailing towards. Uh, full sails ahead and they go straight into the shoals. They have no idea what's happened. So it, it would make the most sense. Uh, mutiny was the, the cause of this whole thing. But and of course, the boats are missing. The lifeboats are missing. And the lifeboats missing. are missing. But there's also another theory because, as Stuart mentioned earlier, the Hewitt had, had been lost about a week before um, the Deering. And so there was some speculation that maybe they picked up the crew from the Deering or... Uh, theoretically, that could have worked out. The Hewitt came, could have came by and seen that the Deering was in distress uh, before the waters got t- too bad and uh, could have gotten the crew on board the Hewitt with the, with the longboats um, and took in the boats on board. Uh, the Hewitt sank with a total loss of all crew. Um, if there was no radio contact. And there were 42 they, men 42 lost, men on that one. So it actually could have been about 52 if the, the crew for the Deering was on there. Uh, the, to, the ship was a total loss and there's no way of calculating exactly how many bodies went down with it. Did they, and no, no bodies were ever found from the Hewitt? 
So even though we have no signs from the crew, we do have remnants of the ship out on the Outer Banks. Right. When the um, ship was broken up by the explosives, a lot of the timber floated ashore. And so some of the residents of Ocracoke built their houses with some of those timbers. And I think Stuart mentioned earlier that he had gone yesterday to the graveyard of the Atlantic and they have the... um, I guess it's pronounced capstan, with the, where you wind the rope. Um, they have that, and they have the ship's bail. Also, have a washstand in the captain's desk, and uh, yeah, a little silver flask that was recovered from it. All of these items were sold at auction after the salvage sale later on, and can be on display. They're very nicely displayed. And then the, another interesting thing I found um, in 1955, Hurricane Connie, you know, churned up the waters and more debris came forward and it actually took the big chunk of the ship that had landed on Ocracoke and moved it to Hatteras Village. And then um, parts of the ship that remained were on display at a Texaco station there on in Hatteras Village. And um, we found a 1973 postcard of that. So they used it for tourism, even you know back then, the ghost ship. They still do it now. If you got a piece of a shipwreck, people will stop by and check it out. Check it out. <laughs> That's right. And then another th- interesting thing I found, somebody claims that they use some of the timber to carve a decoy um, of a Canada goose out of some of the... Th- so there's no telling what's out there that came from some some of the ships during lives on in some in oh yeah some way. yeah the, from what I read also a lot of the locals got a lot of the timber and put it in their houses yeah. so there's probably some yeah. houses down there with that that have some deering parts into it yeah like I forgot to mention that the timbers in the actual gift shop at the graveyard of the Atlantic or they they form part of the wall in there in the gift shop I guess mm-hmm. so I guess it, you know m- most people who salvaged timber or from shipwrecks would use the materials. I mean, they were valuable. Oh, yeah. That was a that was a vital Outer Banks uh, trade at the time. Uh, any kind of shipwreck that would come ashore, I mean, that was building materials. You couldn't get a whole lot on the Outer Banks at the time. So if a ship come up, then you have the supplies on it. You have the ship itself if it can't be refloated. It wasn't really until insurance really started kicking in that uh, they, they would steer the locals away. But uh, yeah, it's a you know, scavenging out there. That's how they survived. That's a legend for another day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jockey's Ridge and the Nag's Head, yeah. Yeah, I'm right. Well, like the story of Frankie Silver, the mystery of the Carol Deering isn't solved, but examining original primary documents brings some clarification, and reading the notes of the men who typed up the wreck reports brings an immediacy, I think, to the story. Thanks today to archivists Stuart Parks, Donna Kelly, Chris Meekins, and our engineer, Tom Normanley. Connecting the Docs podcast is created by staff members at the State Archives of North Carolina, Debbie Blake, Ellen Brooks, Andrea Gabriel, Donna Kelly, Randon McRae, and Chris Meekins. For a look at the documents, maps, and photos we discussed in this story, visit our History for All the People blog at ncarchives.wordpress.com and click on Connecting the Docs. Next week, we'll talk turkey and cats and elephants. And yes, the State Archives has documents relating to the mayhem and even death caused by animals. Thanks for listening. 